everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to What Women Must Know. Thanks for joining me because we have another fantastic conversation in store for you. And if you are listening for the first time, it's great to have you here. It's great to have you as part of my community. If you would like to get my archive shows, by the way, if you can't listen live every time, then you can always go over to my Facebook page, which is What Women Must Know, and I post them there. Or you can go to my website, which is Dr. Cheryl Selman. That's drcherylselman.com, and opt in there, and I will send them to you right to your inbox so you can listen at your convenience. And if you are listening for the very first time, I just want to share with you the intention of the show. Uh, I had actually been on air for a really long time since this network began, so uh, I, I guess it's about 20 years that I've been doing this program, and from the very beginning, the intention was to empower you with truthful information so you can make the most informed decisions possible regarding your health and well-being, and that's really important to me. It's important, it's important to me to be able to share information and support you so you can make the decisions that are best for you and your family not about telling anyone what to do. We all have to find our way in life, but we certainly have to be open-minded and explore all possibilities and know that um, there are lots of answers to questions we have, especially for our health and well-being. So again, thanks for tuning in and being part of this community. And I am going to talk about the show that I have today. So we are exploring the truth about how the herbicide glyphosate created a public health emergency with my guest, Kelly Ryerson. And just a little bit about Kelly. Kelly works at the intersection of pesticides, nutrition, and health as a writer, speaker, and policy consultant. She started the news site Glyphosate Girl, and Kelly uh, previously worked in investment banking, private equity, and NASA technology commercialization. She has a BA from Dartmouth College and an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. It's amazing how people find her two callings in life. And we'll find out more from Kelly how she got to be the glyphosate girl from the commercialization of NASA technology. So it's my pleasure to welcome Kelly Ryerson to the show today. So Kelly, hello and welcome to What Women Must Know. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I know it sounds like a very circuitous route to glyphosate, girl. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as I'm reading your bio, my mind's going, oh, my God, what a journey to take her from the investment banking world and NASA to this, you know, to this, to to this, uh, you know, person who is just on such a mission, right? So, um, yes. So let's talk about that, Kelly. What happened along the way that got you so passionate about this um, this mission in life is to really educate people. And we'll talk more about why glyphosate is such an important conversation. But let's just start with you. Okay. Well, yeah. So, so my background, you know, I I really enjoy even growing up. I really enjoyed math, and I kind of like was very I was not activisty. I was really healthy. I um didn't come from a family of environmentalists or anything. Um and I 
when I was in college, I ended up actually in investment banking because I um, was an economics major, and it simply was pretty easy because these corporations, these finance companies would just come to campus and, you know, you interview there, and then you land yourself a pretty good-paying job out of college. And so I went off and did that um, for several years and had an opportunity to travel a lot and really enjoyed my time. And then... I actually became really interested in space commercialization, and this would have been um, like in 2001, 2002, um, like outer space commercialization. And I um, I joined this group uh, called um, it was the Space Commercialization Federation. At that time, it was just a bunch of like random scientists with a dream to commercialize space. And I thought this was really cool, and I met some people and joined their crew, and we tried to commercialize the Mir space station um, because it was going to be coming out of orbit, and we saw, like, a lot of potential for doing different scientific experiments there. And we hired McKinsey Consulting. Uh, they were willing to put together the business deck, and amazingly, no one was really interested in investing in Mir space station in, at that point. Um but I went ahead and proceeded to work at, at NASA um, while I was getting my MBA, actually, at Stanford and really got into space business. And little did I know at exactly the same time um, at Wharton, uh, <laughs> at the, in, I think it was in the MBA program. I don't know if Elon was there but or if it was undergrad, but he was pitching the same thing. And I pitched it to a lot of people at Stanford, and they said it was a pipe dream and space commercialization would never happen. So. I left that world and then went back into finance and eventually had um, my kids. And when I hit my 30s, I started having some really big health problems. And it was really out of nowhere. I'd had digestive issues for some time, um, but nothing really that, you know, an occasional emodium wouldn't take care of. And But these were really weird things. So I started having really strange rashes. And I started getting really, really tired. Um, I kind of felt like I was perpetually just sick with some kind of virus or just just really felt gross. My appetite was low. Um, I was really, really weak and was losing feeling in my arms and legs. And it was horrifying. This was over the course of, you know, probably a year when it became very bad. And I was seeing tons of Western mainstream medical doctors uh, with my long, long list of different symptoms. And I was just repeatedly dismissed by these doctors as, you know, we just don't see anything wrong. And why would you have all these different systems at play? Like, you know, why are your eyes bothering you, but you have a rash? That couldn't be related. And so I called the hypochondriac. And it was very, very upsetting because the, the symptoms were extremely real. And so they they said that I needed psychological help. And so I went to my psychiatrist, um, and well, I didn't have one yet, but I, I looked for one and finally found one and thought, okay, well, maybe I'm crazy and I should go and have work because these very astute and highly educated physicians that are seeing me are telling me it's in my head. So I went there, and there happened to be intake blood work um, at the psychiatrist, and he tested vitamin levels. And when they came back, they were just totally abysmal and shockingly so. Like, my nutrient levels were just so extremely low. And so I I finally saw a new doctor who said, I think you should try going gluten-free. So I went gluten-free, and 
started taking vitamins and I started to slowly heal. And, you know, this was just before the explosion. Now I feel like there are a lot more resources for people, probably because everyone's getting so sick. Um, but there wasn't much on it at the time. And this was probably, you know, five or six years ago. So I went to, um, so I was getting better and I decided I was going to go and learn more about why, why would I suddenly be gluten sensitive and what is this and why are people suddenly having all these food allergies? So I started digging into why that might be. Um, and shockingly came across the fact that glyphosate and Roundup are sprayed on our wheat and it, they ha it has been since the early 2000s. Like what, what's the story with this chemical? And that sort of, you know, launched this whole journey where I am now because I was just totally appalled. Well, so, um, I mean, that's, you know, your, your world falls apart when you are suddenly seeing your body fall apart, right? And especially yes. when you can't find the reason that's going on. You feel so helpless, don't you? It's like you're powerless and you're, you know, desperately trying. It, it was so funny. I was laughing because so many people have told me when they have symptoms that uh, when they go to their doctors, because their doctors don't understand them or know how to evaluate them, they always, they, they have psychosomatic issues. That's like the, the, the classic yes. write-off, <laughs> you know. Not my so problem. Classic. Not because I am lacking skills or because I am lacking enough knowledge. No, it's your problem. <laughs> it's you all in your head. Always. Which you know, <laughs> right? And I think what I, I what I felt really disappointed by too is I can almost imagine it more with male doctors. But when I have women doctors telling me that I'm crazy, it was frustrating to me because I just feel like that's such a common dismissal that that women, as you're saying, are told that it's in your head and you need you know more antidepressants or whatever it is. And and so when a female doctor would say that kind of thing to me, I found it especially aggravating. <laughs> which probably isn't fair. It should be that sexist of me, but I just felt like there should be some more sisterhood there. Well, uh, you know, because I've written a book about women's health many years ago and investigated it, I, I actually have discovered that um, female medical doctors, because of the training, because of the indoctrination into a system that is basically very patriarchal still, um, they often become more male than other male doctors and just to survive oh, in that system. just to survive oh. right I, you know I mean there are exceptions to that rule, but it's hard for women to really um un understand the and support women when they're trained to be very clinical to be honest so um yeah well, and I wanted to go back to you and just Oh, I just Go wanted ahead. to say, too, what you were saying before, um, you know, the desperation you feel when there are no answers and, no, like, literally no one has an answer for you. It's really panicky. And, you know, you were, like, you're treading water so frantically just trying to use all of your resources of what you have to figure out what's wrong with you. And, you know, sorry, I have a very happy dog downstairs. Um, and I, um, and you know, it got to the point where I was going and. Not now, actually, I do have a meditation practice, but at the time I was going to random, you know, spiritual healers because that's the point where I was. Where and, and actually, some of them were kind of fraudulent. I look back now, um, but you know, you're, you're trying everything you can when you're in that sickened state. It's really the beginning 
of a journey of awakening, isn't it? Absolutely. Like life never looks the same after that. For the better, too. You know, you you value things a lot more afterwards. Okay, so let's continue with this story because um, you did your research and you found that since the early 2000s, that wheat is sprayed with this herbicide glyphosate. Um, let's talk about that. What, what did yeah. you find and why are they doing it and how did that connect to your symptoms? Sure. So, so I was actually at a, I was at a conference um, at Columbia University on celiac and gluten sensitivity and just learning from scientists what the latest was on non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And I just, I really had to know exactly why this was happening. And a scientist was talking about how there must be something other than the gluten itself that's contributing to the issue. And so I asked, actually, did they spray Roundup or any pesticides on it? And no one knew, um, except for a scientist who was there from General Mills. And he actually pulled me aside and said, yeah, we do, um, the farmers do spray Roundup on the grain, and we know we have to put pressure on them because we're a big buyer, uh, but it's going to take two decades to to reverse that practice. And so I was like, gosh, what on earth could be like, and, and so not knowing anything about, you know, farming at all at that point, I thought, well, maybe it does take a really long time. I, I frankly don't know. Um, but what the practice was, and it still is, is that this herbicide, um, glyphosate, which um, has been around since the mid-70s when it came onto the market with from the Monsanto company and was used as a weed filler that many people have seen in um, Home Depot, so it's sold under the name Roundup. And that the glyphosate is called the active ingredient in it, and th- so that's in it as well as some surfactants, which is like a soapy substance that allows the glyphosate to stick to the leaf and penetrate into the leaf. So it's really a big toxic combination, particularly in the United States. And I'm not positive about Australia, but I think that Australia also has um, the toxic version. But Europe banned actually the surfactant component of of our Roundup. And so in the United States, we have a really, really toxic version. Um, So what farmers are doing and, you know, it is an amazing, miraculous thing for their production, but they take the glyphosate um, out into the fields just prior to harvest, and they spray all of their wheat grains so that it dries out and it dries uniformly. And so that makes the harvesting a lot easier than, say, like this part of the field is ready to be harvested, but that side isn't, so we're just going to have to wait for that to dry out. And it just makes the whole process much easier. But unfortunately, so they spray that, then they harvest it, it goes into the combine, and then the grain is sold, and it's just been freshly sprayed with Roundup. So by the time it gets into our baked goods, we are eating these large amounts of, of Roundup. And um, there's an agricultural economist um, named uh, Dr. Chuck Dunbrook, and he commented that, He's equated 80% of our dietary exposure to be due to this pre-harvest spray that they do. So I learned about that, and I thought, what on earth? Like, that can't be good. And you think about this rise of, of gluten intolerance and gluten sensitivity and a lot of chronic problems and the beginning of the spray of the Roundup. So things started looking kind of logical in that particularly 
you know, going down the line and then you start reading research that is, there's a lot of published research on the ill effects of glyphosate on the microbiome and contributing to gut dysbiosis and um, among many things that this chemical does. Um, but it never really makes it past like, you know, the, the academic circles. So it, it's hard to get it out there into the public view. And, and that was something that I decided I was going to commit myself to. Well, what a um, what a transformation for you through your research based on the need to you know heal yourself that has given you this mission in life. And um, let, let's just kind of get the picture around glyphosate because uh, when I started to learn about glyphosate, and uh, we'll talk about its risks. To our health and why it's such a serious problem, but um, just realizing to what extent our food supply is contaminated with glyphosate, and even some of those products that are labeled organic have been found to have high amounts of glyphosate. So, can can you kind of give us that backstory, Kelly, of just how contaminated is the food supply, at least in the U.S.? Sure. So, really, they started being so Roundup started being used in massive quantities um, starting in 1996. And so, the Monsanto owned the patent for Roundup, and the patent was going to expire in the year 2000. And so, they knew they needed to come up with a reason for consumers and farmers to continue purchasing their their um, Roundup product. And so they came up with a brilliant plan of creating genetically modified seeds that would be modified to be resistant to the effects of Roundup. So they developed these GMO seeds, and now they're they're called Roundup Ready. So like Roundup Ready soy, Roundup Ready corn, Roundup Ready cotton. And farmers could buy those seeds, buy Monsanto's Roundup, and then plant those seeds and spray to their heart's content. I mean, it cost them money to spray. They had to buy the chemicals, so there was some sort of upper bound. But they could spray as much as they wanted, and the crop wouldn't die. So those were launched in 1996 and took off like wildfire. If you look at a map of glyphosate use in the United States starting um, you know, pre the pre the invention of the GMO seed versus after, it's just, you just see this explosion of use of glyphosate. And so that's, that was being sprayed. And, you know, now the vast majority of our GMO corn and our, our soy and corn in this country are GMO and sprayed. And so in our heartland, it's a real tragedy because, and I've, I've visited Iowa and, and Illinois and the heartland and looked at farms and, it's the strangest thing because it's just not what you picture farms to be. The soil itself is just this dead, dead hard clay um, in these fields where it's been sprayed, you know, for years and years and years. And so it's not really even soil and farming at this point. It's just a chemical um, you know, experiment in a chemical process of industrial agriculture. And the side effects of that have been just so sad because with the irrigation, there's definitely runoff of all these chemicals. So it goes far beyond just the soil. It goes into the tributaries and the rivers and washes off. 
and really penetrates into our um, environment. And it can be found in drinking water, and it and it becomes so pervasive that it's also found in the air. And um, a scientist, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, um, hypothesized, and uh, several scientists have actually commented that that makes sense, that the ethanol, uh, so ethanol is based on the GMO corn. So some the GMO corn is converted into ethanol, which then when you go to fill up your car with gas, um, a lot of times you'll see the little sign that says 10% ethanol. And so that is uh, fuel that comes from GMO corn. So the U.S. government was always is always trying to find more uses for GMO corn, and that was one of them. And so when that burns, it also releases glyphosate um, into the air. So you have the spraying component, you have the burning from this ethanol, you have you know consuming it in in diet. It's in the rain. Um, so this chemical has just become absolutely just in our bodies, in our environment. And so recently, more studies have come out, and people have been testing urinary levels of glyphosate for a really long time, but finally the CDC decided to do it recently, and so it made headlines. And, you know, finding that this, the, an enormous percentage, I don't know if it was 80%, um, of people found glyphosate in their urine, which makes sense because that's, that's the main way that the body gets rid of glyphosate once you've had it. But it's, it's interesting to see people so shocked because, it makes total sense to me. Um, and but it's not just there. So I actually sent it, – some research showed that glyphosate, when eaten um, by a pregnant woman, um, will cross over the placenta and into the baby. And so I decided to send my daughter's baby tooth into a lab to see whether or not glyphosate was in it because it would have been – that baby tooth would have been formed in utero. And the lab found glyphosate in my daughter's baby tooth, and I nearly lost it. I was so upset because that's just such an invasion, nothing we want to have in our kids. So it is omnipresent, this chemical, and that's sort of how we've landed here. Well, you know, um, just a couple of things you said really stuck to my mind. First of all, it's understanding this, um, the, the connectedness of nature. So you spray it on the land, it gets into the water systems, it, you know, it makes it up into the rain, it evaporates, it's burned, you know, that the whole system is connected. So when you put this chemical in one aspect of the system, like the land, it will then permeate into everywhere because it's so pervasive. Yeah. I mean, it's what, what millions and millions of tons of this stuff has been sprayed and used. So do you so do you think with this um, this epidemic of food intolerances and allergies and gut issues, uh, you know, it was always blamed initially on the fact that wheat was hybridized, so the nature of the wheat had changed, and that was a story that was out there for a long time. But what I hear you saying is because from for the last twenty years commercial wheat and therefore all the wheat products and goes into other grains as well have been desiccated the term is desiccation right it's sprayed before, yeah. right before harvest um do you think that's the primary reason why uh the 
this epidemic of compromised gut issues, and we'll talk about how glyphosate actually damages the gut. Is the main reason that this is such a big problem rather than the hybridization, or maybe it's everything together? Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot, and I've talked to a lot of people because the hybridization came along um, with the Green Revolution uh, following World War II when, interestingly, the U.S. government wanted to be sure that no one starved, and it's, it's a, in, the, in the world. So that's where this whole idea of we must feed the world using agricultural technology came from because there were starving communities in India and other in, impoverished nations. And the United States was concerned that that was going to add to potential for Marxism and communism to spread if the population was starving. And so they went in and they hybridized wheat and they made it much much more high yielding. So there was definitely success in the hybridization of wheat in terms of providing calories to people. But what brought they also brought with it the use of machinery and chemicals, and, and it became more chemical agriculture at that point. But at the time, people were, you know, celebrating it, and, and the scientists who did that, Norman Borlaug, he got the Nobel Prize, and, and so there was a lot of celebration. But no one was looking down at the soil or thinking, wow, these are really toxic chemicals. I wonder um, what's going what's gonna to happen from that. So, but it was birthed and in, in, in people just really grabbed onto this idea, this is great, this is the future of agriculture, is this, are these chemicals. And so, but for a long time there, there, you know, I think about my, you know, early childhood in the 80s, and you just didn't have anyone in classrooms or just, that there was one person that had a peanut allergy, for example, and so it was before this explosion of so many food sensitivities. So that that timeline makes me think it's less the hybridization and more the beginning of the use of chemicals. And the combination of glyphosate and gluten, which is known to to create, well, the gluten itself has been known to trigger leaky gut. Um, which we can get into later, but the combination of the dysbiosis that's created by the glyphosate with that gliadin protein, I think is a really insulting combination that's definitely adding to things. And, you know, the the other thing that hasn't really been investigated, except Robin O'Brien um, years ago, uh, she's an activist, um, but now actually runs uh, a fund for funding farmers to transition to organic, but she um, pointed out that Roundup Ready cotton is grown in the same field as peanuts. And so the peanuts are being grown in the soil that has been just absolutely drenched with Roundup for the corn production. I mean, not for the corn production, sorry, for the cotton production. And so why people aren't looking to see what the impact might be on the peanuts if it's being sprayed with glyphosate, um, it's surprising to me, except that it's probably because industry is making sure that study isn't done. Wow. So that's so interesting, which would explain why people go to Europe, eat the bread products, have no problem, because they're not either spraying or they're not using the same chemicals here. They're fine when they're there and Mm -hmm. when they get back they have to avoid it again because it's causing reactions in the body. And that's definitely true with me. 
I had a really happy experience where I went to Joe and the Juice in Copenhagen a few years ago, and I asked, is this muffin that looked incredible? Is that gluten-free? And they said, yes, it is. And so I happily took it. And I, it was the best muffin I'd had maybe in any memory. <laughs> and then the next day I came back and said, can I get the gluten-free muffin? And they said, we don't have gluten-free muffins. And I was like, oh, and I was fine after eating it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. That's so interesting. Um, yeah. Because what, you know, as you describe this story, which is really just kind of making little bells go off in my head, the whole epidemic of gut issues, and we will talk about more because glyphosate does a lot more than damage the gut, um, mm-hmm. is potentially behind so many of these issues that have become such big problems in epidemic and all the, all, all the variety of gut and SIBO and, you know, dysbiosis and uh, uh, IBS and could, could all be the result of these toxins, this herbicide, this glyphosate that has totally infiltrated all of the food systems and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yes. And wow. And it would be interesting to see the extent. So atrazine is the second most used herbicide and still I mean it's enormous quantity, but it's just not as famous. And um my specific focus on glyphosate is because it is by far and wide the most used herbicide in, in the history of the world. So we are most exposed to that certainly. Yeah. And the trend I mean, you know, many... is is what's shocking is despite, you know, all the criticism glyphosate is getting now, it's expected, the, the market for glyphosate is expected to grow over the next 10 years just substantially. Right? What more will it take? We're starting to know more and more of the science behind this. How could it be growing? How can it be growing? <laughs> how can it be growing? <laughs> you know? How well, can it I'm be just, growing? I, and, you know, I think... Um, uh, you know, there are some countries that are willing to continue spraying it, and, um, and certainly the United States is one of them. And something that's interesting is happening uh, on the farm, though, is that the weeds are deciding that they're, they're outthinking the Roundup. So they're, they're no longer um, willing to die when sprayed with Roundup. They've converted their genetics to be able to survive. And so those are called super weeds. And I just love that so much because that's nature taking care of itself. Wow, I just don't think that humans are able to convert as easily. I don't think that we can change our genetics to be okay with Roundup anytime soon. But the plants are, are moving that direction. Unfortunately, it's made it so that um, so Bayer, the pharmaceutical company, bought Monsanto. So now I'll refer to Bayer. But they um, are developing an herbicide that or a GMO seed that is resistant to five different types of herbicides. And so now you can spray all five of those and hopefully beat those super weeds. You know, I, I just have to ask you this question. What has so dumbed down the the farmers? I mean, can't they see what's going on? Can't they see that their soil has been sterilized? Um, can't they see that these super weeds are growing? They must be getting sick if they're spraying as well. Uh, it boggles my mind, Kelly, really, mm-hmm. to see this perpetuated. 
Well, and it's really sad. I actually, I, I went in um, during corn harvest time and I spoke to a bunch of the GMO farmers. Of course, they're such nice guys and they don't appreciate being asked those questions, of course. Um, <laughs> it's insulting, right. but they, um, but I asked and, and like when I asked them, for example, in your family, is there much cancer because you're exposed to a lot of these, these chemicals? And they said, well, there's cancer, but it doesn't have to do with Roundup because the EPA says that it's safe. The EPA does the studies like that. They wouldn't lie about it. And you know, the, the companies have done such an excellent job of persuasion. And that now that farmers are really stuck in this situation, whether they know that it's toxic or not, because they're, the economic viability of their farms is completely based on chemical agriculture. So it makes them quite bitter, I think, for Californians and organic farmers to come in and tell them, no, you're doing the wrong thing, you know, after they're just trying to make ends meet. Yeah, well, um, well, it's interesting to note that glyphosate is actually listed by the International Agency for Cancer Research as mm-hmm. a, was it possible carcinogen? Is that the category? Possible? Probable? Um, it's, a, it's a probable, yeah. Probable. In fact, it was just one I mean, notch away from being an all-out carcinogen. It was just because... Um, the, epide- the breadth of the epi- epidemiological research that was available at that time um, wasn't as deep as they would like it. So they called it probable versus entirely. Well, I don't know about anybody else out there, but if something is categorized probable, I would assume it's definite carcinogen, you know, a fine a fine line of distinction between probable and definite, right? If you've made it that far, oh, totally. you can assume it's oh going to go all the way, you know. Well, you know, uh, I live really close to I live really close to Napa Valley um, in California, and the epidemic of cancer in Napa Valley, with all the spraying going on, and the, vine- the vineyards are some of the worst offenders in terms of spray and if you wanted to have an organic vineyard in napa it's really hard to do so some people do it but you know there's just so much spray just environmentally it's hard to avoid but the cancer numbers in napa are just really sad and you know it's it's hard to justify living there really so do they use glyphosate on the yes great they do they use it and and they use it yeah throughout the vineyards it's one of the most common ones and actually there was an article just this week in the san francisco chronicle saying that they have a big roundup problem in napa because now it is becoming more widely known to be a probable human carcinogen and just to back up back on the epa for a minute the epa and bayer monsanto are in cahoots to hide the fact that this is a carcinogen and that's what all of the roundup trials are about because they've very much known that it causes cancer, specifically non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, in the case of the trials. But they have colluded, and they've made sure that it still stays on the market. And the um, the extent to which this cover-up goes up makes you really not trust any of the regulatory uh, system at all. But there's an important deadline actually coming up because on October 1st, the EPA has been ordered by the court to reassess the carcinogenicity of glyphosate and actually use the research that is everyone knows about, that IARC used, et cetera, and 
and they've already put in a, a complaint that they won't possibly be able to meet that deadline because of the comprehensive nature of the analysis. And meanwhile, in 2016, the EPA called together their own experts called the Scientific Advisory Panel to come in and give their opinion and look at the research and say, okay, does this cause cancer? Does it not? One of the scientists is actually here in, at UC Berkeley. Um, and they went in, they looked at everything, they said, this is likely a carcinogen. And so they turned in the report, and then the EPA came out shortly after and said, no, for experts don't think that it causes cancer. <laughs> it's unbelievably corrupt to keep it going and knowing so many people are getting lymphoma from it. Well, I think that's another example of what we're realizing, how these federal agencies are all corrupt, you know, and do not have our best interests at heart and probably – haven't for a really long time. And that's uh, that's yeah. a shock for people. Has really kidnapped these federal agencies for the purpose of profit. Uh, uh, over health. Over, over sanity. <laughs> Insanity over yeah. sanity for profit. Um, you know, I want to go back to your story, Kelly. So you discovered that you had this gluten intolerance or wheat intolerance, then you investigated further, led you down the path to the glyphosate story. What did you have to do for your healing at that point? So for my healing, it was hard because once again, and I you've probably seen this, like I do I just feel like in the last five years resources exist. But I I was looking everywhere to find someone that could rebuild my body. Um, vitamin by vitamin, because as I say, like, I just, I was so deficient. And it was the kind of thing where I'd add one, like, I added B12, and it sent my body into a major, like, haywire, because it was like adding one thing without the balance of the others, and just really challenging. So I ended up taking a um, physiology course, and then I started reaching out to various experts in the different vitamins who had done research on it. And I'm like, okay, so if I'm adding this B6, what do I need to have alongside of it? Cause I'm not tolerating, you know, a, a multi, a B with like different types of Bs in it. Um, so I need to be really specific just vitamin by vitamin. And so I had tables of what I was doing and adding tiny milligram by milligram of different things to slowly build my system. That was just in this really inflammatory, excited state just to build it back to a baseline. And I tried different probiotics, but as we know, some are better than others. Um, I gave up dairy, which I still am very dairy light because the casein was bothering me. And mostly, I think, I just got a new Vitamix, and I started going to the farmer's market and just tossing a lot of things in, <laughs> as many as fresh things as I possibly could. And that's I really what I lived on for a good year. Um, just that stuff. I wasn't having sugar, and I was still in this desperate mode, like, am I going to ever feel like I, I did before? And I was so relieved to find out that I actually feel that today I feel better than I did even before all this, this health stuff happened because it's forced the matter of changing my, my eating behavior. So I was one to really love, like, Oreos a lot. <laughs> I, I was not the healthiest eater. It wasn't terrible, but I was not one to have many smoothies prior to all of this. And so my hope is that my longevity is, is more going forward. But I do miss the dairy, I have to say, more than the gluten. Hmm. So 
just can, can you just go through the list of symptoms that you had? I just want you to share that because it may ring bells for people listening sure. who are also struggling. So what were your list, your litany of symptoms? Oh, my gosh, it's so long, but, I, but you can see why it was a medical mystery. So, so my least, the, the least of my problems were digestive things, except that I had, like, a pretty swollen stomach. Now I look back and I, I realize it. But I had blurry eyesight. I had really strange, splotchy face that looked – I thought I had lupus because it kind of looked like a lupus rash on my face, kind of that butterfly look. Um, but then I didn't have lupus, but it, it appeared like that. Um, I had lots of tingling, like, in my hands and feet to the point that a lot of times one toe would be, like, fully numb. And now when I'm cross-contaminated cross and I eat gluten, actually that, that same thing comes back where my toe goes numb. So I, it's a signal to me. Um, I had these big wealthy kind of rashes on my thighs. And I'd get this thing where I, when I was losing a lot of hair, and then I'd get this thing where I would wake up kind of in the middle of the night with what I call internal vibrations, where my neurological system was just so revved up that I just couldn't rest, really. And I would wake up just with vibrations, like like it was like an earthquake or some kind of motor was underneath the bed, and I'd feel it. And um, so imagine going into the doctor that doesn't believe you, and you're like, I have these internal vibrations. And so they'd be like, now you're crazy. But I went in, um, and, you know, it, along the way, and I'm not someone that thinks, yay, antidepressants, but, of course, they were layered on me. So I was on two different antidepressants, and um, I was put on a steroid for a time because I had really swollen sinuses, which is oftentimes alongside this overall inflammatory thing. Um, I actually had a, a hysterectomy that kept my um, – I kept my ovaries, thank goodness. I had a hysterectomy because my periods were so out of whack and my bleeding was so extremely heavy. And they said, well, you know, I don't – and I wasn't going to take birth control. And so um, that was the result. And so I went in in this sick state and had my uterus taken out. But lo and behold, even when my iron levels did come up, I, I still was not feeling great. Um, so – Oh, my nails too. My nails had strained ridges in them, and I think that that was the uh, malnutrition aspect of it. I would get sort of this sense of derealization almost, where um, I almost felt like kind of I was floating, and I think that that has to do with the swollen sinuses. So, you know, anything weird I probably experienced, but a lot of times that's the thing with this gluten sensitivity. I was just reading a recent report on it, and Thank goodness now it's being more documented in medical research that oftentimes uh, the, the symptoms of a gluten sensitivity are um, extra intestinal, so in oftentimes neurological. And some people have it mostly in it shows up in anxiety and depression, which I find really interesting. Well, that's the research that our gut has a direct, the, the microbiome in our gut has a direct highway into the brain so the brain mm -hmm. is very how the brain functions how our emotions are how we think is directly related to the health of our gut which is why mm -hmm. it's like that ecosystem right that's on the planet how we destroy the ecosystem and the digestive system and functioning of the plants and the soil to, to destroy the microbiome in the soil which destroys 
the plants and we do it to ourselves with all these chemicals that we're exposed to. But as we're talking about glyphosate, it's so pervasive and so destructive. Um, so two things I want us to cover in the time we have left. Um, first of all, First of all, thank you for sharing your journey. I, I can only imagine, Kelly, when you were in the throes of this, how harrowing it was to see, it must feel like your body's just falling apart and you felt so helpless. And, oh, it was um, so helpless. And, and not to be able to get a solid diagnosis is a really scary thing. And I know so many people struggle with that. I mean, it's awful mentally to think that no one can figure it out and this is it, you know. And, and then when they do offer, if you go to a traditional medical doctor and they do offer you something like two antidepressants and steroids, yeah. it can only yeah. make things worse in the end. And it did, you know, and it did. And, and coming off of antidepressants is no picnic. It's, it can be really, really hard to do. And I've had the, the unfortunate thing where that had to be, you know, had to happen, but, you know. It's just, yeah, it's a mess when you get involved with the pharmaceuticals. But I understand because I was that person that was desperate. And I'm like, what do you have? Anything to just make me feel better. Yes. I, yes, that's it. We're so vulnerable. So the two things I wanted to ask, can you, can you um, just share what are the consequences of exposure to glyphosate? So I, I know that's, that can be a whole show on its own, and we don't have that much time. <laughs> yeah. We only but. But, you know, just run through what does gly how destructive is glyphosate to our body? What is it doing mm -hmm. from exposure? So there are different – so I'll start with um, dietary exposure. So with dietary exposure, you're eating this. It, it goes down into your gut, and there are different scientists that believe that it actually – before it even gets to the gut, it's – well absorbed into the body um, through the digestive tract. Um, but not many people have had the funding to study exactly, you know, from, from the mouth down where and when it leaves into circulation. But what we do know is that once it hits the, the gut and the gut biome, it really goes to town and starts selectively killing the beneficial gut bacteria. And it's just the strangest thing because the beneficial gut bacteria have something that's called the shikimate pathway. And that provides the energy, it's basically the energy switch for the bacteria. And the plants also have it, which is why glyphosate works in the first place on plants to kill them. Well, it, it does the same in our beneficial gut bacteria. And very oddly, it also um, doesn't impact the negative gut bacteria or the pathogenic gut bacteria. So E. coli has no problem with it being there. So very shortly after starting to digest this and, and it's exposing, it being exposed in your biome, you see more dysbiosis and, and uneven balance between the good and the bad guys. So there's that element. And then there's also the element that it can contribute also to this, this uh, condition, which probably you've spoken about before, called leaky gut, um, which is when there are toxins from inside of your intestine that are never supposed to get out into your bloodstream, but due to malfunctioning, um, they're called tight junctions in the intestine, they open and allow these toxins into the bloodstream. And that launches a whole autoimmune um, like response and reaction. And 
And that's why people oftentimes have a good result going gluten-free when they have an autoimmune condition because it can slow down that leaky gut, um, which is so damaging, as you say. Like, everything comes back to the gut in terms of root cause. But unfortunately, it definitely does not end there, glyphosate's impact. And what terrifies me more than the autoimmune connection is the fact that it's a really substantial endocrine disruptor. And so it can go in and manipulate our hormones. And some really frightening research has come out that has shown that it can cross over the blood testes barrier and go into men's sperm and lead to early sperm death and slow motility. So when you start thinking about infertility and the epidemic of infertility, there's a very you know, clear connection, at least with glyphosate's connection to it. Furthermore, it will it's been connected with androgenization. So the a recent study, actually, I think it was 2021, um, some scientists went and tested the urinary levels of women that were in their second trimester of pregnancy. And they were able to connect the urinary levels of glyphosate with an increase in the distance between the female fetuses, vagina, and the anus. And that is androgenization. So the baby girls, with the more exposure into the maternal body of glyphosate, the more the impact of androgenization. So that is horrific to me. And I I don't even know what happens then with, with their children. And a lot of the studies are not showing really results of, of true damage to the body until the, the um, like the great, the grandchildren and the great grandchildren of the mother who is exposed to glyphosate. So it's sort of like a wait and see now with, you know, our children's children to see what the impact really have been. But the endocrine stuff just, you know, it's really end of species when you start speaking that way with androgenization and increased miscarriages are also connected to it. So then you put that aside and then the cancer story is a really huge one because it's been connected with um, breast cancer as well as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, of course, breast cancer is an enormous, enormous issue, and it's because of its interaction with estrogen as well that it can um, contribute to breast cancer. So I'm not really even sure that there, is, there are many conditions that are not potentially connected to glyphosate, but they can't all be caused by it. I, I, well, I mean, I guess they could be. I doubt they are, but certainly um, – there, there have been there's been research very that's published that absolutely confirms the damage to um, the liver and kidneys also from glyphosate dietary exposure. So, a whole host of, of issues and oh, and, and to top it off, recently there was research that connected it to neurological diseases like Parkinson's because it can cross the blood-brain barrier as well as the blood-testes barrier. So. It makes kind of the autoimmune situation not seem so bad when you think about, okay, well, now now we are just as much nature as the plants, and so how are we going to survive this chemical insult that now has just completely infiltrated our, our body and our environment? It's really terrifying, Kelly, as you lay it out, because we are – those that are vulnerable that are taking this in, and by the way, there are ways to detoxify it and – Maybe we need to just mention that because it's, there, there's more awareness about the 
um, toxicity of glyphosate and therefore the, a growing awareness of what can be done. I, I've been researching the use of chlorella, by the way, which um, mm. has the ability to detoxify any heavy metal and pesticide and um, and glyphosate. So I, I've been taking and eating chlorella on a regular basis, but I know there are other things. So why don't we just mention to leave it on a, a positive note a positive we can do. We can, you know, uh, you know, yeah. some hope. So we don't what, just go what, home and cry. So, I know. Well, we'll make more activists out of people. We, it's about waking people Please up. Please be activists. I hope more people join the activists around because it's lonely over here. There are only a few of us. Um, so, so um, something that I really, well, excitingly, actually, there, there are some specific probiotics that um, have been now recently tested, and um, one of them is Megabiome, and that has been shown to counter the effect specifically in the microbiome and replace what's been killed by glyphosate, and that's been tested. Um, another thing that is amazing and won't surprise you is apple cider vinegar has been also shown to help detox and, and repair the, the gut from glyphosate and salts. And I know there's another solution. I'd be interested to hear what, what, you, what you know, but some people have proposed to me a product um, but it has gluten in it, and so it's a no-go for me, and so I just kind of dismissed it. But my guess is there are several products probably out there that really can help. Well, well, um, yes, more to be said about this important topic. I, I want people to um, know about your website. So it's glyphosategirl.com, glyphosategirl.com. Yeah. And if you go to Kelly's website, I I've been there. I know there's lots of blogs, information, um, so much research that you've been doing, and it's part of uh, the education that we all need. I mean, I look, I've been researching this a bit, but I'll tell you, Kelly, you've blown my mind today. I, I learned more shocking things than I even <laughs> oh, that you wanted to know. <laughs> even wanted to know, truly, and because uh, the story is huge. It's it, the story is huge. Okay. Listening to you, I really get a sense how pervasive and damaging and the consequences for generations to come really is yeah. from this exposure. I mean, this is just one chemical, but it's the most pervasively used chemical. But in conjunction with everything else, we need yeah. to really wake up and um, and, you know, I think just sharing your story, if people can relate to all these various symptoms that are going on in their body, you need to start looking at what you're eating, the exposure to foods with glyphosate, and then begin the journey of healing and restoring, starting with the gut. You know, you know what I'd really also like to say is that some of your listeners may be in that really, really horrible place that, that I was, and it's so desperate, and I just would hope to share that I really feel like there's a reason why it happens to some of us and you don't know what it is yet, but it's going to be a whole new life once you get all of this under control and, and you will, you will figure it out. And now there's so many people out there that help and you can try and you'll reflect and you'll say, okay, well, that's why that happened to me because life is strange like that. And, and you're an inspiration for that because, going through your trials and tribulations, you've awakened on so many levels and are here sharing your message with your mission, which 
I have to say, I just really appreciate everything you have done to support all of us out here and getting educated and empowered. And thank you for the journey you have been on and your willingness to share it with us. So uh, it's just been such a pleasure to have you on the show and really an inspiration. You're an inspiration, Kelly. And uh, I oh, know you're you. doing so much to help so many people in the world. So thanks so much for being with us. And uh, for everyone listening, please support Kelly. Go to Glyphosate Girl, share this story, share this podcast and the the message of uh, how we have been poisoned with glyphosate. And we need to stop it. We need to stop it. So I know you need to go, Kelly. I will let you go. Thank you again for being with us. And uh, to everyone listening, uh, we've been having this powerful conversation with Kelly Ryerson. Uh, Be sure to share this podcast with everyone you know. It's a big wake-up call. And Kelly, thank you again for all that you do. And uh, just wishing you the best, just the best, the best health and the best success in everything you do. Thanks so much. Same to you. And uh, to everyone listening, I'll see you next week. And until then, always honor the wisdom of your feminine self. Bye for now.